Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based science. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, it is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting but leave your heart print with every step. Hi, Sherry. Happy Tuesday. It's recording day. It is, and it's also a Hallmark holiday today. It is. (laughs) Sending you tons of love, sweetie. (laughs) I'm sending you love too, but every day is Valentine's Day. Every day is a love day. I think today, last year at this time, I had this love-hate thing with Valentine's Day. On the one hand, fucking Hallmark and chocolate and all of that. And I was single for so long and it always felt exclusive and it felt like it was for other people. And now that I haven't been single for a long, long time, I still feel that. And But then I, I've sort of evolved over time and got to the point where I was like, well, if everyone is focusing love on one day, can't be. That's a good thing, right? It's good to kind of have that concentrated love. But so last year after Valentine's Day, I started doing a daily love drop where I would take an image and write a poem or do something about love to kind of just reinforce this idea that pour your love into every fucking day. You know, why do we have to have one day? What would happen? What would happen to the transformation of this planet if we thought every day was Valentine's Day? Yeah, raise the love vibration. How, how, what's the negative side of that, right? To just... Addiction, loving. maybe. <laughs> but, you know, there's all sorts of ways to do that. <laughs> You can keep loving your heart and loving your expression in any day that we look at. I have this memory and it's, you know, a Valentine's Day. In the house that I grew up in, we had this weird thing that was the hole in the wall. So in one of the bedrooms, there was this hole in the wall that was designed to store things. It didn't have a door. It was just like an open bookshelf. It didn't even have shelves in it. And we called it the hole in the wall. And it was in the bedroom. And one of my memories of Valentine's Day is this hole was big enough for three little kids to sit in, maybe even four. So it was a nice size storage space. I can't for the life of me telling this story, wonder why it was empty when we had eight kids. (laughs) I wasn't filled with things. So this is like, okay, that's the curious part of the story. But I remember sitting in there and it was Valentine's Day. And my dad came home from work and he had a little chocolate heart for each of us. And we were in the hole in the wall (laughs) when he got, and you know, when he came and he offered us, you know, this little bit of chocolate love. And I always find it curious, you know, of all the things that are memories that stay, right? So we have all of these different memories that happen, but there's a lot of 
growing up that I don't, I wouldn't say I remember it. You know, it's just things that happened in the past. We're not really connected to it. But for some reason, whatever the impact of that one day, that one moment of my dad coming home from work, I knew where I was sitting. I could probably remember his, you know, his scent because, you know, people that you know, scent is a really powerful way to access memories. That is one of those memories that is kind of cemented in that stayed with me. So there's my little Valentine's Day story. <laughs> well, my little memory is not so happy. Yours is a beautiful memory of Valentine's Day. Maybe my origin story of feeling bitter, not bitter, but not a fan of Valentine's Day. So when I was really little, I went to a Jewish day school and it was Valentine's Day. And, you know, I was so excited and I made little Valentine's for everyone in my class and my mother. And the reason I probably remember the story is because it's become one of those family lore stories that I've heard over and over and over again. But my mother said she stood at the door watching me walk up the path to the door, the little sidewalk to the door with a pouty face. She said, what's wrong? And I said, they don't celebrate St. Valentine's Day at the Foreman Day School. <laughs> said, like, that was, you know, it was just love. I didn't know anything that it was a religious holiday or there was any kind of religious implication to it. So maybe that was the first seed that was planted that gave me a little negative Nelly. <laughs> Were you able to give away all the cards and things that you made, or did you have to take them back home? I Oh, I did, definitely had them in a little bag. I did not get to give them out. But, you know, but now flash forward that where we are now, now that's probably why I'm also a Krista Hindu Buddha Jew, but where in our synagogue, they call it Friendship Day. They just call it something else, but the kids do the same activities, and they, at Colomet, they are inclusive, and they just, and it's a very diverse, you know, body of kids. And it's just, it's a wonderful, it has shifted my perspective in many, many ways, but that's not what we're here to talk about. That's not, I like that friendship day though. I'm going to yeah. keep that in mind as we move forward. But as we, before we even dive into our episode, I just want to remind everybody who's listening that we have a free virtual event coming up that is, yay, the first in our series of Discover Your Excellence. And this one will focus on the power of uh, personal practice. So you are invited. Yes, you are invited to come. The date is February 26th, and it's from 11 a.m. to 1230. It's a 90-minute workshop, or we're calling it a play shop. So doesn't that sound fun? Like we get to do a little bit of yay play at the same time. <laughs> so who is this for? Why would you want to be here? If you are ready to like prioritize your self-care, if you keep saying, I'd love to have a home practice, but somehow you don't know where to start or how to begin. If you already have some rituals that you love, how can we highlight them? So of course, we would love if you all came live because Sherry and I and Anecdotal Anatomy have a mission of connecting the individual to the collective. And, you know, if you're a, a longtime listener, you know that we're architects of a neighborhood <laughs> and we'd like to see your face in our neighborhood so that we can get to know you even better. But there is a recording. So if this really resonates with you and you're thinking to yourself right now, that date doesn't work, please register anyway, because we'll be able to send you out the recording. And, you know, like I said, it's the first of our Discover Your Excellence offerings. 
So you want to stay on track and be with us right from the beginning. Right, because first implies a second and a third. Now I'm going to give you one of my little pet peeves and has nothing to do with anything here. When people say first annual, well, how do you know until you have your second one? Anything could happen. It may never happen again. So first always implies that there's like a second or a third. So there's going to be more of discovering your excellence. And so start with us now, as Teresa said. So today, I just want to kind of say that we're going to finish our yoga eight. We're going to, we're bringing the final three limbs together because they are, they're, they're sacred and subtle and there's enough similarity that they, they deserve to have this stage together. And so, you know, that said, I want to just go back for a moment to last episode, just because I was listening to it. You know, sometimes Teresa and I will listen for edits and for things like that before we put it out. And I started laughing. I was like, I think near the end, I must have thrown in Pratyahara in different places where I think I meant to put a chakra's name, whether whether it was Vishuddha or Agnya or whatever that was coming. I didn't write the specific note, but it made me giggle. And I thought rather than try to fix and, you know, present a perfect, you know, sort of show of this, this material, I just chose to giggle. So I hope you giggled with me. And if you're a purist and you're like, I'm taking notes, that's going down on the, you know, not absolutely right place. That's cool too. You know, be you. Teresa and I have been at this game for many, many decades and for myself, almost 25 years ago. And looking as doing this podcast has been an education. It has been, you know, we have, we know what we know through our experience and through the transmission of the teachings through our various teachers over the years. And I know several years ago, I kind of, I I haven't had a teacher in a while. So a lot of this information has been sort of just, you know, swirling around in my head and my heart and being interpreted from my own stuff. And that's what we do. That's what we get to do. But as I'm going through and I'm hearing myself say these words, these Sanskrit words, Sanskrit words, that I feel like I've been butchering them for so long. So I apologize in advance. I did go on and try to listen for correct pronunciations of things because Sanskrit is a, it's a vibrational language. And when it's spoken correctly, has at least, you know, from the teachings, it has the potential for healing. It has potential to put vibration into the world that is for our optimal well-being. But when we don't do it, we kind of butcher the sounds. It changes the meanings of things and it's not going to kill you. I mean, it's not going to be the thing like, oh, shit. She said, you know, um, Pratyahara instead of Pratyahara or Dharana instead of or in, whatever, instead of Dharana. So just stay with us because it's more right now. We are going to do that work to kind of move into a, a different space with that. But we also feel like the content is so important and even more so now in our history. And maybe I shouldn't even say that because every time I fucking say something like that, I'd look back at history and I think, no, that was there then too. That was in a different way, you know, but we escalate with the progression of technology, this sort of removing ourselves from the present moment every time a ding, you know, Teresa was talking earlier about the dings and the dongs and the beeps. I'm going to throw that to you because I don't want to you know, usurp your story here about, you know, <laughs> the dog. Yes. Well, I agree. I love stepping into the role of a student. And although, like you, I have been studying and practicing yoga for many, many years, I'm going to stay away mm-hmm. from actual numbers. <laughs> but, you know, also being a teacher. And I found with yoga and with massage, stepping into teaching and the podcast has made me have to dive into the information a lot more deeply. And, uh, maybe took me away from the mindset of a student 
So coming back in and really focusing individually on different places, different concepts uh, to prepare for our recordings has really opened up my lens of being a student. But also, I agree with you, needing that guide, that student guide. And coming in, so going back to the question that Sherry just kind of alluded to, this morning I was walking Siva and thinking about, you know, concentration and focus and the subjects that we'll be discussing today. And my phone did, you know, ding. There's a, there's a message. And I started to realize how easy it has become to distract from that focus and concentration. This, you know, I, I think I phrased it when I boxed Sherry again. She's probably in the middle of her personal practice, and there I am <laughs> boxing her. So there's a sound going off. In, Explain in what her. box is. I oh, mean, box is boxes. like a walkie-talkie, and there's a specific sound when you use a box, which kind of sounds like like this. So, you know, this little beep, maybe you'll hear it, sorry. But anyway, these sounds go off when we're concentrating, thinking, in our personal practice, whatever it is that the activity is going on, and it's so Pavlovian for me, is that all of a sudden I hear, ooh, I have a text, or my messenger ding went off, or ooh, my boxer sound went off. That's Sherry. I know it's Sherry because she's the only person that I really use this walkie-talkie app with, that now whatever it is that my focus is on, wherever my attention is, I shift it and go, oh. No matter what, even if I don't get up to look at that text, the thoughts start going through my mind. Oh, I wonder who that was. And is that important? Do I need to address it right away? Can it sit in the background? And I'll get to it later. So even if I don't get up and, and look at it, the series of questions come through my brain, through my mind, and my focus was interrupted. So how do I keep that focus and let all of those sounds and interruptions happen, but run in the background. That's the practice. And I think that because we've been doing this practice, we get to make that choice. For people who don't even have a practice or the, the awareness that there is a choice to let those sounds go and return to them later, like the thoughts in meditation when you know we start thinking and we return to the breath. You know, Every time we return to the breath, every time we hear a ding, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, used to say, like, the bells were, they were offerings to wake up in that moment. You know, like when the phone rings or you're stopped at a stoplight even, or, you know, something interrupts the flow. We don't have to look at it as something that we've done wrong or bad. We can use it as an opportunity to become present. So, you know, I think most of us don't live in a constant state of being present. I mean, is that aspirational? I don't even know if that's like a, a goal. I remember thinking when in, in asana, we activate mula bandha, which is kind of, you know, your pelvic floor, that muscle that keeps you from peeing. We kind of draw it in. And I remember asking someone once, has anyone, I, I'm not an ashtanga yogi, although ashtanga means eight limbs, that there's also a style of yoga called ashtanga, that who is able to engage their <laughs> pelvic floor for 90 minutes? Like I just, it blew my mind. And then I started hearing stories about Ashtanga women who were having a hard time with chi natural childbirth because their pelvic floor was so strong that it was kind of holding them in. But anyway, I digress. So this idea of like, can we engage a muscle for that long without some kind of you know, repercussion? Can we engage ourselves in the present moment 
you know, indefinitely. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm sure that there are people further down the path who are, you know, more engaged with the present. And it's not to say you have to live in the past or pine for the future to be jarred out of the present moment, because that present moment is so, it's so tenuous. It's that, that infinitesimal moment where the past and the future clash, where they meet, where they, where they bump up against each other. And it's so fast. So there's, you get to make the choice. And these last three limbs of this yoga system are the practices that allow us to, to touch the hem. I love that, that metaphor. If you just imagine some giant in the sky with this big, long skirt, and there's this hem just that you can barely reach and just, ah, uh, the hem of this awareness, of presence of what it is to be focused, to have concentration, to be able to sit in meditation without being drawn away from the bells and the sounds. When I first started practicing meditation formally at the Shambhala Center in New York, I remember one of my first questions was regarding something like this in terms of thought. I said, is it thinking if you, if I'm sitting in meditation and I see a bird on the windowsill, there are lots of these big windows at the center. And I said, if I see the bird, am I thinking? And the teacher said, well, if you see the bird, your eyes are working, your senses are alive and you're, you're in the present moment. But if after you see the bird, you start wondering, you know, where does that bird live? Where's the nest? It doesn't have babies. Is it looking for worms? How is it going to find food in New York City? Like, how is like all of these different things start coming in? Then you've started creating storylines and are attached to this bird in some way. And that's thinking. So in this idea that like we can hear these bells and we can allow our ears to take the sound in. But what do we do with that data? Do we then think, oh shit, you know, if I have three kids, so sometimes that, oh shit is, I wonder, is someone in trouble? Does someone need their mom? Like I'm here. If I were to choose to stay focused on my meditation at the expense of possibly my children being in trouble, then am I really practicing yoga? Is this something I'm, I mean, I need to sort of be discerning and I know that Richard Freeman or someone talks about these last three limbs as sort of like being a surgical tool, which we'll get to. Yeah. We haven't named them yet. They're, 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 they're Sanskrit. I'm happy so I'm, to try. Yeah. So I'm going to digress now. I'll back up just a little bit and answer <laughs> the question that you had asked. Can you engage a muscle for that long? And the answer is absolutely yes. You can, because we're sitting. And so we have postural muscles that are engaged all the time to keep us upright. Different than choosing to engage your pelvic floor, postural muscles are something called slow twitch muscles. It's like running a marathon. They're always engaged. They're slow twitch. And if we are upright, then there is a soft tissue element that helps to support this uprightness in our seated or standing posture that support the spine in um, stacking each of those vertebras. So just a little side note, yes, there are muscles that are engaged for long periods of time, but that was not effortfully. Like it's, you know, there's effort to stand up and to, to, or to sit up. But I'm not thinking about those muscles. I don't feel like I'm engaging them. I'm not like making a muscle with my bicep or with my you know, hamstring or with my pelvic floor. It's not like a conscious engagement. It, it feels like I just, you know, good posture has always been something. My mom stand up straight, sit up straight. And we all have good posture in my family. But and I get that there's these muscles that are required to keep us up like that. But it almost feels autonomic. Like it doesn't because I also don't have pain right now. 
I don't have an obstacle in the way of my uprightness. It it's also habitual. <laughs> so like, there's all of these other things. Like when we, so my question then is, can one hold the pelvic floor muscle for ninety minutes? You could. I don't know why you would want to, but yes, I mean, there is ways that we can hold muscles for long periods of time, but we are really digressing. And if we, <laughs> if we keep in this rabbit hole That's and true. ask each other <laughs> questions, we're never going to get to. That's true. Why is it? So initially, when we were talking about this particular episode, we had a discussion to decide whether we would have three episodes for the last three limbs. And we went back and forth. You know, do we want to separate them or do we want to connect them? And you and I decided, hey, let's look at connecting just the two of them. So Darna, which is how I say it. And I know that maybe that is, um, I still need to work on that. So I'm okay with saying that I still need to work on, on it and be okay. And Diana. So again, Teresa's pronunciation. But then you boxed me so now that everybody knows what that means because I just explained it about some interesting information that you had found in your research about why we would connect these with samadhi and take the last three of the eight limbs and discuss them together so I'm going to pass that back to you to help us to understand why we're where why we're linking them and how they relate to one another and I'm going to refer back to my, my, my man, Richard Freeman. I just, and this is a book, The Mirror of Yoga, which I read many, many years ago. I've used it in gazillions of classes and I've got things written in the margins in pencil. And, and there's this whole paragraph that I, and it's funny, there's certain books you have to go back. Like I was looking through and I just wanted to hear Richard Freeman's voice in this conversation. And I have all sorts of markings here. So I've clearly read it before. I've clearly even used it in class, Lem 8, Samadhi, study and practice, I've got all these things in the margin, but I had totally forgotten about it. It's one of those things that completely left my field of consciousness, which is a term he uses quite a bit in this book. So he says, this is from Mirror of Yoga. He says, the last three limbs of the eight-limbed path, Dharana, Dhyana, and Samadhi are collectively called Samyama, which means to draw together. And these three things taken together as samyama are considered to be a primary tool of yoga. Though samyama, through samyama, samyama, we are able to go back to the beginning of practice in order to examine the body in the context of an interconnected pattern of existence that goes infinitely beyond the boundaries of the body itself. So I'm going to stop there because that was a lot. And I just want to say that the reason why these three things, this single focused concentration, which is the dharana, and the meditation, which is dhyana, and that samadhi, which is sort of the dissolution of the subject object when the seer and the scene become one, these are the final three that we move through. But what he's saying is, I think, and I would never want to mis misunderstand, but that once we kind of have a certain practice, understanding, feeling uh, through this yoga system, and we get through the whole eight, then we get to go back to asana and we get to experience and, you know, the yam, yama and niyama. And I, I also learned that it's not yamas and niyamas, it's yama and niyama. And I think it's also plural. But anyway, that we go back to re-examine our ethical you know, sort of uh, systems in our lives. We get to re-examine our, our asana practice and 
our pranayama, and we get to then pratyahara. So what he's, I, I think that these final three allow us the tools. They help us sharpen the tools so that as we continue our practice, whichever, where, whichever you know, limb we're in, we have a different perspective. Then he goes on to say, we are able to take the yoga asanas to unbelievable realms of subtlety, getting in touch with remarkably deep aspects of the sensation and feeling that arise as a means of allowing us to access profoundly subtle aspects of the mind. Mind, body, mind, body, mind, body. Through the same samyama, a mature pranayama practice is developed. And it is also through samyama that we start to understand relationships. We begin to understand other beings. All eight limbs of yoga are made increasingly functional and useful once we get to the last three, which more immediately than the other limbs help us to develop the ability to pay attention to what is actually happening right here, right now. Ooh. That is one, that's one paragraph. If that mm -hmm. turned you on and you just like word porn, oh my God, Mirror of Yoga. You And, and if you love yoga, this book, if you haven't read it, uh. I really liked the way he talked about once you really dive in, practice, and understand these last three, how much enhancement we get by going back to the maybe asana, the thing that brought many of us to yoga, then to come back and look at it through that different lens, through a different way with much deeper understanding and focus and concentration and self-awareness because of these uh, more subtle practices. It reminded me when you were talking about a story of a student of mine in massage school. Anne-Marie, if you're listening, hello, you know who you are. She called me once after she had graduated and said, you know, she really wanted to deepen her understanding of massage and everything that she had learned in school and was asking for some help as to how she might approach being able to do that. And I knew at the time that she asked me that the school that I taught in was looking for a teaching assistant. And so my suggestion to her was go to the school and apply for the TA position because what I knew that had enhanced my massage education was when I was asked to teach it. And when I had to teach it, I went back and really had to dive into information that was the foundational teachings after I had already learned them all, graduated, been in private practice, owned spas, and then came back to start all over again. And it was a completely different experience. And Anne-Marie wound up being an amazing teacher because she had that opportunity to have already completed the program, was out working in the world, seeing clients. And now there she was taking each and every class again as a teaching assistant. And uh, the stories that she shared with me with how deep her understanding became because of this new focus and concentration on things that felt overwhelming when she had learned them the first time, just completely changed the way that she embodied the information and brought it forth to her clients. And I see this exactly the same way as we come to these last three limbs and practice them. And I have to say, honestly, in just preparing for this discussion, I learned so much either again or brand new from when I had embodied and learned this information in my yoga teacher training 
and also in my yoga therapy training. You know, sometimes those learnings, we learn them and then they kind of sit in the background until something pokes and says, hey, let's revisit this concept. And so I am really excited about even this new way of thinking that you introduced me to this morning of how they unite with each other. But not only that, how I can then go back and look at some of the other things that we've discussed again in a whole new way again. And that kind of led you and I into a discussion on the power of having a teacher, being a student again with a guide and not just, not I don't like using the word just, but not only teaching, but really embracing my desire to stay a student. Yeah. And, you know, you and I have different, different ways in. Like I never, even as a teacher, I was never 100% confident that I was, I mean, I, there were always people in the class who were smarter than I was who knew more and all of that. I always felt like a student in the class and I always felt like my students were as as much my teachers, I just like mm-hmm. Stacey always says, you just need to be someone's fourth grader to someone's third grader. And that's kind of how I felt. And the teachers that I have had that I've chosen to be my teachers over the years have been far further down than just a fourth grader to my third grader. And I, I want that. And, you know, for years, I, I think this is a digression too about the teacher, the role of the teacher. Maybe we'll do a whole episode on the role of the teacher, the seat of the teacher. I think that's a beautiful thing. So I'm going to kind of move away from, because I could talk about this for an hour and a half, but I wanted to bring up uh, an example from my practice this morning that I think relates directly to the, this, these readings and the, these concepts. Uh, I've been in bed, uh, last week I was in bed for three or four days and I did maintain, I abbreviated, I did not abandon. I did a, you know, very short meditations. I didn't do a lot of movement. I didn't do any of my alternate nostril breathing, the Nadi Shodna. I did basically my seated meditation and uh, my healing prayers. And so today was the first day I decided to go back to my pranayama as part of my sadhana, as part of my daily self-guided ritual, my, my self-guided routine. So I do my, I get up, I shake it all off, I make my bed and I say, sing my little prayers for all the people out there who are suffering. I go, I do my, my asana, I'm shaking it out. I'm doing the warriors. I did a couple down dogs today. I was working on my planks. Like I'm feeling like they were, but I wasn't doing any warriors. Like that felt to me like I still need a little time to activate that warrior energy. I get back to my bed and I sit on my pillow and I set my timer and I'm thinking, I just kind of like feeling bored. I was feeling like I don't really want to do the alternate nostril breathing, but I felt my nasal passages were clear and there was really no excuse not to. And so I kind of just bit the bullet. I hate that expression. Got to find another expression. But I, I was like, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to. Mm. So I set my 25 minute timer, five minutes for pranayama, 20 for seated for mindfulness. And when I was done that five minutes, and it's funny because I only did about four rounds of the, of the alternate nostril because I started feeling a little bit impacted in my nasal passages. So I started doing square breathing, just you know, the same number in, hold it the same number, same number out, hold it the same number. It's just like a square. And then when the five minute bell went off, I felt like I was so well prepared to sit in my meditation in a way that I hadn't been the days before but wouldn't have had that recognition had I not taken some time off. Maybe I would have, I I can't say for sure, but it was such a dramatic shift in energy that my mindfulness meditation after my pranayama felt 
like an organic movement into just this next space. And I just felt such an, a deep sense of gratitude that I didn't abandon. I didn't say, you know what, fuck it. Today, I'll do it tomorrow. I'm really famous for I'll do it tomorrow. Everything I can start tomorrow. Every, everything is possible tomorrow. But that I didn't succumb to that and that I was able to actually have an experience that feels very much like what we're talking about today. The sort of progression that that feeling like there's logic to it doesn't mean that you have to follow it in that order if logically you've already kind of moved through that, you know, but there is a, a logic and a wisdom to at least going back and taking a look. So maybe you've already done it and you're already somewhere in Tiana, Diana. Oh, you're in that meditation state. But you go back to your asana and you're like, oh, I can revisit this in a whole new way. This is kind of cool. Like what, what just happened? You know, I love that. What the fuck just happened? Yeah. You know, when I think about being in places of deep concentration, which admittedly is for me a hard thing. I think at times to achieve, but there's always those times when you're like, where did this, like, if I go out walking in the woods, I might go out walking in the woods and then I'm just out and I'm in nature and I'm in my noticing of, you know, what am I noticing that day? Sometimes it's all the cracked trees or other days. It's like, what mushrooms can I see today? Whatever the thing is that I'm noticing. But when I really know that I have been in this state of focus, in the state of concentration and in a place of dharana, I might say, oh, you know, I have a meeting. We're going to be recording. I wonder what time it is. And I look down and I'm like, oh, my gosh, how did like an hour and a half go by? And I didn't even know it. That's what I kind of equate it to when I finally look at a clock and I'm thinking like 15 minutes went by. And I'm like, where did the time go? What I've noticed in those, those instances is until I'm like, oh, no, where'd that time go? Am I going to be late? Which is anxiety and stress, right? I think that I felt peaceful and calm because there wasn't this disjointed focus, this multitasking from one thing to the other. And I think that's the power of practicing for me, concentration is to be able to reduce stress and anxiety by allowing my attention to stay focused on whatever it is I'm doing in this moment, rather than trying to, like, I, I've said this before, I used to be so proud of myself that I'm such a great multitasker, but multitasking has its purpose and there's reasons why that needs to get done. But I also find that when I'm juggling multiple things at the same time, that I have this sense of stress and anxiety. I can hear it in my breathing. I notice that I start talking fast. Maybe I get to the end of the day and be like, why do I feel stressed today? And it's usually because I've changed my hat a hundred times in the day, or I'm trying to juggle uh, a few different things. So concentration for me is a practice that helps me to reduce stress, to reduce anxiety, because I don't allow myself to wander. And it's hard because I can be in the middle of doing something. That's why I turn my phone off when I go out walking. If I want to know if something important is going on, I'll look at it. I don't want the sounds to be interruptive because they pull from my concentration. Even 
when I'm not thinking, oh, I really need to con concentrate and focus, I know that if I'm going out for a long walk to help me feel calm and relaxed and embody nature, that the distractions are going to cause, even if it's the lowest level of stress, by pulling, being pulled away from this mindfulness practice that I value so much. I think that's beautiful. And I think that it also offers us an opportunity to look at the, the nuances of, of concentration practice, which is what we're talking about here, and just daydreaming. You know, I think that I love daydreaming and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but it's different than what we're talking about. And so, like when I said, by the end of my teaching time in public classes, I was no longer teaching yoga. I was teaching discernment, like pay attention because we can, we are masters at fool, masters at fooling ourselves and our minds are tricksters. They are, they want like what Stacey says, it's all about survival. The mind is, is keeping us in, in survival mode. But so like, for example, in my meditation, if I was concentrating on this beautiful crystal that I have, and there was a little pinhole of light coming through, I kind of used that as the object of my meditation outside of my breath. So my breath, number one, but I was focusing my attention on this crystal. And at one point I let my eyes close. <laughs> and then I realized, I don't know how, how many minutes had gone by. I opened my eyes and I was beginning to nod out. And I thought, oh, I'm tired. And then I thought, oh, wait, was, I, was I in a deep state of of really highly concentrated focus, or did I fall asleep? You know, am I looking at this crystal with a focus of intention of just being in concentration, in focus, in a single point, or am I just, you know, working really hard not to look at the bird that just flew over there? Or am I really working hard not to pay attention to the fire engine that's coming down that way? Like. <laughs> What is the effort? Where does the effort go? And they can all be true and they can all be in service of. But I think that one of the things we talk about a lot is awareness, this consciousness of the activity that we're doing, that falling asleep may feel relaxing, but it's not really a practice. Ooh. It's something our bodies need that we do, that we, you know, when you're tired, like I love the teachers who let the kids who fall asleep in class sleep because they know those kids need sleep. You know, but I, that's always fascinating for me because I've, I mean, I, I've learned to kind of move the word lazy out of my vocabulary because I don't think I'm inherently lazy, but I have definitely chosen the path of least resistance many times in my life to a point where I could easily have called in that, call in that? Is that a word? I could easily have called in that. I could easily have called in that. I could easily have called that a practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that distinction between between what is and is not a practice. It's um, I'm going to think on that one because it really does give me a lot to think on, but not a lot to respond to. So I'm going to be quiet <laughs> about that right now. Okay. But I really want to talk about how these two, the first two, interrelate with each other because I really, you know, I looked at Dharna as concentration. Diana as meditation, and they felt really separate to me. But really what I've come to understand is that, yes, they're both meditative practices, and we begin with the practice of focusing attention, maybe on a single object. Maybe it's a flame from a candle or a mantra, or I love to stare at water as it flows, or if I'm at the lake, all of those little 
golden sparkles when the sun hits the water just right and just let them absorb all of my tension and all of my focus. So it is the practice of being able to focus on whatever it is that we choose to focus on. And that, for me, helps to, and I think it's important for me because I am getting older and I do want to be able to keep concentrating, to keep my mind strong and focused when that's what I need. Where I've also now learned that in addition to it being meditation, one of the terms that I really liked when I was reading was sustained concentration. So that's how they link and grow, how we grow from one to the other is we practice concentration so that we can have a more sustained ability to concentrate. And that becomes a more advanced practice. It's simple for me to concentrate on reading a sentence or two. But what happens if I would need to sit down and study, you know, complicated information? Can I keep myself focused on that? Or yes, I can notice something in nature and say, wow, that's so interesting. Look at the pattern of that cracked tree over there. Yeah. But can I use that for longevity, for sustainment, for allowing my concentration to last for an extended period of time. And if that's a meditation, maybe like you, it's setting the timer for 20 minutes. I want to practice for 20 minutes. And we can grow on, grow that as well if we choose. So how do I get this greater awareness and insight into my practice of concentration by allowing it to become longer and longer and longer? And setting you up beautifully for a successful meditation, whatever that means for you. And words like success tend to like, woo, what is that? But I was, since we've already talked about Vox, I'm going to disclose something that, that I recently discovered that appeals very much to the Cliff's Notes person in me. And that's on Canva. They have new, you can make a doc and they have an AI program called Magic Write where you can go in and ask for like whatever you want and it'll search all the interwebs. It's like Google, but Google chooses and gives you whatever you want. And yeah, I've used it, but I tend to rewrite because I'm a writer and I love to use the words that I want to use. But for this, I was just like, I'm overwhelmed because I have so many books and I have so much, you know, sort of so many different doorways and windows in that I just kind of wanted to concentrate it into one Dave Letterman late night, you know, top 10 list. So what I found really fascinating and I, I asked in different ways, I said, top 10 ways to practice Daharana. And the top 10 that they say are things that you know, Teresa and I use in our programs. These are things, they are, they're part of our pillars. I mean, these are very deeply resonant practices that are associated with dharana. Breathing. The practice of dharana starts with focusing on the breath, slowly inhale and exhale, counting each breath and being aware of the air entering and exiting the body. Second one, visualization. Visualize a peaceful and calming image of your choice. Keep your focus on the image and allow it to fill your mind mantra. And I will put these in the show notes. I won't read all. Well, yeah, I will. Um, mantra. Choose a mantra such as a word or phrase and silently repeat it to yourself. You can also focus on the sound of your mantra without repeating it. Walking meditation, yoga. I'm not, again, I'm not going to read them all because we only have a certain amount of time. They will be in the show notes. Yoga, body scan, listening meditation, like a guided meditation or relaxing music, aromatherapy, affirmations. And the 10th one, nature. Being nature. in nature, 
So I found that really interesting. And there are very tangible ways that we can, you know, access even just, you know, bits and pieces of this concentration and allow ourselves to grow and to be able to notice of these different practices, which ones are you drawn to? Like being aware, not only of the things that you see, but the activities that you're drawn to will give you clues as to ways that you can sustain your own home practice. And if you're like, I want more of that, then join us on our DYE on the 26th. Okay. So the thing that I thought was really fucking interesting, and I'm going to look here. Oh, when I asked for the top 10 ways to practice Tiana, it gave me 10 instruction points for mindfulness meditation. It didn't give me 10 different ways to practice the way it did for Daharana. It gave me 10. It gave me the way I might teach mindfulness meditation. Now, before I go into that, I want to say that there are a ton of different ways to meditate. You know, there are guided meditations, loving kindness meditation, Tonglen meditation. There are, you know, from different wisdom traditions, all different kinds of ways to meditate. And so this is not to say this is the way that we do it. And it's interesting because I have a teacher who says, like, I did my training with him. and I love I love this whole sort of atmosphere that is created, but that this is mindfulness meditation. And I found myself over the years when teachers say things with such confidence, and I have a real connection with that teacher, that I believe that that is the ultimate truth and the ultimate reality. And I get judgy on people who don't necessarily, and I know other things that I've said are contraindicated to this or counter to what this may sound like, but I would be like, no, that's wrong under my breath. No, what the fuck are you thinking? Well, how do you know? Meanwhile, all of this is, you know, from transmitted information, not necessarily lived information. So I'm going to give you the 10, not their 10, I'll read their 10 steps, but after what they said, I'll say what I would say, and we'll see. I haven't done this yet. So you find a comfortable, quiet place to sit. So yeah, take your seat. That would be, see, when I teach mindfulness, there are three, three instructions. Take your seat, place your attention on your breath, and when your mind wanders, label your thought thinking and return to your breath. But so find your comfortable place to sit. Set a timer for the duration of your practice, number two. Number three, close your eyes and focus on your breath. In my tradition of practice, we keep our eyes open, but I'm not going to get into a, into a thing with that. Number four, be aware of the sensations in your body and your breathing. So there's that awareness. How am I starting this thing? How, take a, I used to say in class, take a Polaroid snapshot of where you are now and watch it develop through the class and see where you end up. And if is the picture at the end of class, does it feel or look like the picture you took at the beginning of class? Number five, observe your thoughts and feelings without criticizing or judging yourself. All of this is not is non-judgmental. We're not even judging the thoughts. We're not judging how we feel. We're just noticing, we're witnessing, we're observing. And then number six is really important. And this is a piece that goes to when your mind wanders. It says, when you notice your mind wandering, gently bring your attention back to your breath. So we have to notice that the mind has wandered. We have to be aware of that before we can gently draw it back. Now, in my tradition, then from the Shambhala tradition, we label our thought thinking, and then we return to the breath. Number seven, visualize a soothing image or calming phrase. This is not part of my practice, but I may try this because why not? Imagine something lovely. Number eight, repeat a mantra silently or aloud. Number nine, allow your awareness to expand to include your environment. So that's like a whole other thing. I've been in meditation trainings where we talk about the peripheral awareness, not to shut it off, that there's concentration and focus, which is really almost centered, but then that peripheral awareness can bring in, you know, the smells and the sounds and the things that, I mean, we're alive in this world where our senses are working. It's 
seeing the bird, it's hearing the siren. And then finally, end your practice by slowly and gently opening your eyes. So these are ways that we can work with. And you can see how like those first practices were differently tangible. And there were so many different ways to work with our concentration and our focus so that by the time we get to our meditation, we have the tools to sit, to sustain our seat, to be in that moment until the moment you know, leaves us and we have to draw it back because the meditation isn't about how long can I hold my breath? It's, you know, when I have to take a breath, well, I'm using that as a metaphor, but it, as soon as I have the thought, I'm not interested in eradicating my thought. I'm a beautiful thinker. I love my thinking, but I don't want to get attached to it. And I don't want to, you know, let my thoughts be the thing that drive me. I want to be the one to craft how they come in and out of my, my soul. I like that craft, how they come in and out of your soul. You didn't even say my thoughts craft, how they come in and out of my mind. You brought it way deep inside to that heart and soul space. So that was really beautiful. I enjoyed hearing that as the way that you were sharing that with us. So what are the benefits of all of these practices? Like why are we talking about it? Why would we want to use these practices in our life? And I know that I've talked to many people when I talk about meditation and concentration, and I often get things, responses that are like, oh, I can't meditate. I can't get my brain to stop. Oh, I can't do that. I can't sit still. You know, so what do you think when we're talking about meditation? What are the words? What are the thoughts that are kind of circulating through your through your mind, both in the, oh, that sounds amazing. And maybe what, what are the resistances that you're thinking, oh, that's going to be, that's not an accessible practice for me, because I do hear that from different people. So why would I want to do this? Well, I also found some really great top 10 benefits in my research. And the first was to reduce stress and anxiety, which I always find really interesting when you know, I'm talking with somebody who says, I can't sit still. I can't like get my brain to stop. And I'm like, well, if you do, you won't be so stressed. Like, <laughs> It seems really counterintuitive to somebody saying I'm too stressed. And I'm saying, well, you have to, to get rid of the stress. They're kind of in opposition with each other. But maybe we start a little bit softer with more simple ways to enhance focus and concentration so that we can be more productive and efficient in the different things that we're doing. So as we practice, maybe we do find that we notice some of those periods of time where we do have focus and concentration and you're like, oh, maybe I can do that. You know, the other thing that I really love when I'm reading uh, different authors is that it cultivates meaningful and harmonious relationships. The more I know about myself, the more I know about how my mind is going to wander, what that monkey chatter is telling me about different stories or situations. If I can sit with it, you know, I remember when I was growing up, my mom would say things like, just go sit with it. So even though she wasn't a meditator or, you know, act, didn't really have access to most of this, that's just kind of a common phrase. Just sit with it for a little bit and see how it feels. But when I feel like I am reactive. Sitting with it allows me to maybe see things from a different lens, be a little bit more clear in my thoughts. And the end result is 
I show up differently to situations which will enhance a more harmonious relationship with others. Since I began these practices of concentration, of meditation, of spending time in nature, I, I feel like a byproduct for myself was I have a deeper spiritual practice. You know, that when I'm out in nature and I feel that I'm really in that zone of concentration, I'm in awe. And I think awe is a foundation for my personal spiritual practice. Like, look at this. How did this, you know, beautiful scenery, how did this amazing markings on this tree, there's a tree that I passed when I walked Siva and it, all the bark kind of peels off in this extremely interesting way. And it, I always pause and I was like, hey, you're one of my favorite trees, but there's this sensation of being in awe and having a spiritual fulfillment that there's something amazing out there, whether we label it as creator, whatever that personal thing is, I just feel that it's a spiritual connection for me. It also then inspires me to spend that time meditating, even when it's hard. It's kind of a, yeah, I know this is going to be hard and I really don't feel like doing it, but I feel inspired to sit, rest, not rest, but sit and have that space for a meditative practice that can continuously get stronger. When I come out of meditation, especially if it's before we're going to talk or before I'm doing my research, I feel like I approach it with a deeper sense of creativity. Sometimes I really get blocked when we pick a, a subject to talk about and I'm like, I feel like I have writer's block. I have talker's block. <laughs> and I don't know uh, which way because these are expansive subjects. So I become overwhelmed with how to communicate what I want to say and the time that I spend with a concentrated effort and maybe then stepping away into more of a meditative state. I walk away a little feeling more creative in my approach. So those are my personal takeaways. I'm sure there's a ton more out there for, you know, what are the benefits of these practices of concentration and meditation? And where are they leading us? But when you were talking, two things came up. And it was what a beautiful journey. Just, oh my gosh. When you were talking about the resistances, I started thinking about, was it Gil Headley's thing, The Fuzz? Yes. His video, The Fuzz, about the fascia. And how when we don't move, when we're not in any kind of, when we're stuck in bed, if we have an injury or we're unable to move, when he had done the dissections of the cadavers who you know were active in life, there was like this glide. There was, it was very smooth and beautiful between the fascia, you know, sort of, and then those who were not, who were sedentary had this thick, like he said, even one night of not moving can create this, this fuzz, he called it. And if you can imagine like a fuzz that's impenetrable, that's hard to like chip away at. He said, but with some movement, with those smaller movements that can get a little bit bigger, you can begin to melt away the fuzz and begin to regain the range of motion that hopefully you had before, whatever, you know, that your, your point is. But so when we're resistant and we're like holding on tight to our ego's idea of who we think we are, because this is how I've always gotten things done. And if I do anything different, or if I stay in Shavasana, I'm wasting time. If I sit in meditation, I'm wasting time. Like I've got so much to do. Imagine how much more you could get done if you melted away your fuzz. 
if all of the things that you were gripping that had over time solidified into this unporous mm -hmm. sense of who we think we are, then we don't grow anymore. There's no sense of movement or glide. So I'm feeling a little bit like I've appropriated your language, like Fasha's <laughs> the realm of Teresa. But when you were talking about that- But I love when you talk science, Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> it gives me all the feelings. And the other thing was when you were talking about it deepening your spiritual practice, your connection to spirit. You know, my dad was a man of science and a man of faith. And he used to talk and he grew up Orthodox and, you know, but he was so amazing. He was a yogi without being a yogi. Like my mom was in a different way. But he talked about nature being that force, you know, being that over that organizing force that is bigger than we are. But I'm going to go back to my boy, Richard Freeman, my man, Richard Freeman here. <clears throat> so just real quick. As the yoga deepens, we find that the dharana concentration progresses into the next of the eight limbs, which is dhyana or meditation. Within the state of being, there's a flow of the mind into only one field of awareness. And this causes a spontaneous sense of relaxation and release. So there's your relaxation and release. In dhyana, there's no longer the heat of conflict between fragmented aspects of mind. And at the same time, there's an appreciation for the fact that what it, whatever is within the field of awareness possesses a truly sacred quality. Sacred in this context simply means an unknown, a mysterious, or a captivating quality that invites the mind to flow easily. Ooh. If every person who's listening to this does not buy this book, what the fuck is going on? Like this <laughs> book is at like, I just, can you tell I fucking love this book? I love that book, but uh, you love uh, many of your books. You're an avid reader, and yeah. uh, yes. So um, with that, yeah, so I'm kind of interesting that we had a bunch of dad energy in our conversation today. My dad entered, your dad entered, so that was great. <laughs> but we started out talking about how we were blend uh, in this discussion that Richard Freeman talked about. I think it was that what, what you said. Put That's the true. three together. Well, and he didn't. So, make, he didn't say he. I, it's. Where that, I referenced where you're, it. Where you're referencing yeah. it. But that leads us into samadhi. Like the purpose, I don't like purpose, but the practices help us to gain an awareness into this joy and blissful moments. The, what did you say? How did you phrase it earlier in, in the discussion? The what are we talking about? Samadhi. Uh, oh, the, the dissolution of, of, the, of the object and the subject. Subject. The you know, that funneling in that this, the way the first time I heard it, when they said the seer and the scene become one, I was like, oh my God. I was at bingo the other day when I was calling B1, I couldn't help but say, B1, everything. B1. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's yeah. on my resume now, bingo caller. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the unification of the seer <laughs> and the scene is a beautiful way of talking about it. I also learned that, you know, when I was studying Samadhi from with some of my teachers, was that this is that state of bliss and joy. And it felt like, oh my gosh, this is such an unattainable destination to get to a place where I've always feeling joy. Like it, it registered in my mind. I'm not saying this is the way it was presented, but it registered in my mind as a destination. And I've come to, and it didn't take long, but I re-educated the way I looked at it for myself as more noticing those moments where we have, where joy and I, this union of seer and seer just pop into our life, even if it's 
you know, a split second to pause, to be mindful, to notice that we do have these touchstones, these times without, and hopefully not everyone, I don't want to make a blanket statement. I'll come back and say, when I have these moments where I just feel totally at ease and joyful and at peace, I, I have another practice and that is to pause and recognize them and notice, to take that moment even if it feels fleeting, to be like, oh, thank you for stopping by. So not a destination where I am doing all these practices. So the same way um, I'm going to use the metaphor, can I hold on to my pelvic floor for 90 seconds? Can I sit in bliss and joy indefinitely? You know, they're they're both not something that... um, I just wrote that down. Oh, it's. Uh, I just wrote that down. Mind. Well, because I was thinking about you know joy. We've had this conversation different from happiness, which Shauna, one of our guests, talked about. The root of happiness is happenstance, and so it's conditional upon circumstances that are around. But that joy, from a book about Dionysius that I read years ago, was that it could pervade all of that. And the the thing that I've always said about that was that when I was mourning Yitzchak Rabin's killing. And there were 5,000 people in the room and we were all in mourning. There was also a pervasive sense of joy. So joy, when cultivated, I believe, can actually sustain any condition. It can be there even in your darkest moments. There can still be a bubble of joy that lives within the person. When cultivated, happiness, not so much. And why would I want to be happy all the time? Like, I think that there's value and there's, there's meaning in in all of the emotions that we get to experience. Mm. And we can still cultivate an atmosphere where joy can circulate through all of that. So we don't have to spiritually bypass. We don't have to say, oh, everything's beautiful and sunshine and roses all the time. But I think the bliss is bigger than that. It's, it's like joy. It's the result of letting go of the object and the subject relationship. It is, that is what can happen. But I think that my experience is similar to yours. I only get glimpses of that every once in a while. And that is enough to sustain me on my cushion, on my mat, because I know that it's possible. And those glimpses are like the shade up a little bit. And sometimes the shade's a little bit higher. Sometimes, you know, it comes down. Maybe the focus and the, the practice of focus and concentration is what allows us the awareness to notice, to notice when those little things pop into our field of vision because we're not cluttered with a mind filled with a hundred other things. So it gives me the opportunity to see and notice what I really, what is going to bring me that happiness and joy. And uh, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. And that's a wrap for season five, man. Yoga eight was much longer than eight. We hope that you you got something. You know, please send us your questions, your queries, your comments, your stories. We want your stories. God, we want your stories. And if you want to have a conversation, you know, let us know that too. Um, and I just want to remind you now that we're signing off. Don't forget about DYE. And I know that you are like waiting for us to finish talking so you could go register. <laughs> so anecdotalanatomy.com backslash DYE. And if you forget the the backslash D-Y-E, just go to Anecdotal Anatomy. It's up in the the dropdowns. You'll easily find it. I can't wait to see you. We've we've already gotten a bunch of registrations and it's really, the momentum is growing. Be part of this wave. 
Yeah, you know, I, I do want to like say one more thing about that. In the live events that we have offered in the past, uh, we've done our Wonder and Wonder walks. We have had camp. We had a rhythm and rhyme. And one of the things that the feedback that we received from the attendees, our Keystone members, was that they really wanted a little bit more time to build community, to get to know each other. That that was high on their list of goals was to be it, to find their tribe and be in community. And that is also high on our list in our mission is to help connect the individual to the collective and to present and give space for people to find your people. And so I know everybody who's registered because we see the registrations come in. You don't want to miss this. Well, next time, people. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and all our other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.
I just want to remind everybody who's listening that we have a free virtual event coming up that is, yay, the first in our series of Discover Your Excellence. And this one will focus on the power of uh, personal practice. So you are invited. Yes, you are invited to come. The date is February 26th, and it's from 11 a.m. to 1230. It's a 90-minute workshop, or we're calling it a play shop. So doesn't that sound fun? Like we get to do a little bit of yay play at the same time. <laughs> so who is this for? Why would you want to be here? If you are ready to like prioritize your self-care, if you keep saying, I'd love to have a home practice, but somehow you don't know where to start or how to begin, if you already have some rituals that you love, how can we highlight them?